Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. This has been an interesting season, hasn't it? And... Um, in the midst of it, though, I believe that the spirit of the living God is with us if we're open to that. God touches our hearts in the midst of the lives we're called to live for him. Um, this week, I overheard an interesting conversation. It was an interesting one. It happened on the front steps of City Church Central, and uh, there were two uh, professionals that are helping us here at City because we've got some mechanical things we're working on inside the building, and then we've got some stuff that we're working on outside the building as well. So we had these two professionals, and one does their work outside, one does work inside, and it just so happened that while I was with the guy that's doing the outside stuff, the inside guy was exiting City Church Central, and I introduced them, and I shared their names with each other, and then the one said, well, what do you do? And he shared what he did, and the other one said, well, here's what I do. And in mid-conversation, they looked at each other and said, one of them looked and said, man, I wish I did what you did. And the other one said, no way, I wish I did what you did. It was crazy, and it was so rare, because normally, when people meet like that, one person would think, wow, I wish I had their job, and the other one's going, thank God I don't have their job, right? And yet it was amazing, and they actually talked about it, why they wished they had each other's careers, and both of them are extremely successful, they're great at what they do, but just getting maybe up in years, they know their own gifting, and there's nothing wrong with that, where you understand your own gifting, and you go, hey, I kind of wish I was doing something different, and then for a moment, I thought I was going to broker this corporate merger or something like that on the front steps, but it didn't really go that way, but it left me kind of thinking about... Um, what are the times in my life, or maybe who are the people that I know that I wish I did what they did? Kind of left me thinking about that. Who are the people in my life where I kind of wish I did what they did? Now, before we move more deeply into that, remember the start-off story about two guys meeting each other. They would easily trade places with each other. One of the reasons why we had the outside guy here is he's helping us figure out the property right next door to us. Of course, we own that. That's sort of the big, huge field that we have, the lawn that we have. And just so you know, on August the 2nd at 9 a.m., we're going to start having outdoor services every week. So we're actually going to have that on the lawn. Now we will still have indoor services. We'll still live stream at the 11 a.m. service. But on August the 2nd, we're actually going to open up an outside service. So this guy was here helping us figure that out, kind of the lay of the land, where to put the stage, where to put the sound equipment, all that kind of stuff, kind of helping us to figure out sort of the landscaping of it all and the best way to do it. And so I just wanted to let you know that, that on August the 12th, the first Sunday in August, the 9 a.m. service will be outdoors. It will also be a family-friendly service. So we're encouraging families to come. We're going to have it set up that way. You'll hear more information about that. And as you understand, if we're meeting outside, masks would be optional at that point. So I know some people um, can't really enter into the presence of God with a mask on. So we're trying to help with that. But the idea is there, too, is we have some people who are inside people, some people who are outside people. And again, these two individuals that met, um, one's outside, one's inside, they kind of talked about 
man, I wish I had your career. Now, what's interesting is, is that if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, which is where we're going to be reading from this morning, if you were to look at the Gospel of Matthew, you would discover that the Gospel of Matthew begins with us meeting two people. And a lot of times we read this Gospel and we don't think of it this way, but in the Gospel of Matthew, you begin with the birth story of Jesus. You read all about how it takes place. It's not a straight line. It's very kind of, it's got some real rough edges to it. It's not the way you would picture God's son coming into the world, but there you have it. You read the story. It's a lot of upheaval. And then in the midst of the story of the birth of Jesus, who's now been announced as a king who has come to bring in a new kingdom, we meet another king. That king is King Herod, Herod the Great. And what we find in the Gospel of Matthew is you meet these two kings. And what we're going to learn through the first four chapters, the Sermon on the Mount is in chapter 5, is that the Gospel of Matthew is presenting to us, believe it or not, two kingdoms, two ways of doing life. One way of doing life is like King Herod. King Herod, interestingly enough, um, some ancient historians tell us, he may have been the wealthiest man that has ever lived. Stunning. At the very least, what we know, he's incredibly wealthy. We know he was brutal. He was ruthless. He was politically corrected or uh, connected, not politically correct, but politically connected. Sorry about that. Slip of the tongue. And yet, in the midst of all of that, um, we also know that if you crossed him, he killed you. It's interesting. He had a way of moving through life that was based on strength and power and political savvy. What he's most famous for, though, is he was an incredible builder. His summer retreat was Masada. Some of you saw the old movie of Masada. I've been up on Masada many times. It's an incredible fortress that was his summer home. And he also rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem to this magnificent state. So he's famous as a builder. And what the Gospel of Matthew brings to us is two kings. Two kingdoms. How do you want to do life? And Jesus is born underneath Herod's kingship. And what does Herod do? Herod tries to kill him. And Jesus and his parents have to flee to Egypt to get out from underneath the umbrella of King Herod's reach. And so the gospel presents itself as two kings, two kingdoms. And how do you want to do life? And here's what I can promise you. Those two people... Jesus and King Herod would not have met on the front steps of City Church Central and looked at each other and said, I will swap callings, I will swap what you're doing and how you're doing it. That would have never happened. King Herod would have looked at Jesus and said, you're out of your mind. You'll never build a kingdom this way. This is not how kingdom works. He would have tried to give Jesus some advice on how to do it right. But what we discover in the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus lets us know about his kingdom and how his kingdom is going to operate and how his kingdom is categorically different than the kingdom of King Herod and those that are around him. So we're going to pick up our reading in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through chapter 5, verse 2. And the reason why I want to do this is so that we know who the audience is for the Sermon on the Mount. This is important. We covered this more in depth last week, but it's important for the context of this week. 
Matthew 4, 23 and following tells us the following. Jesus went throughout Galilee, which is a large region, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So he's going around doing miracles. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's doing the job of an itinerant rabbi, but God is with him and people are being healed and delivered from demonic presence. Verse 24. It says, news about him spread all over, and then it's very strange, Syria. It's very odd. But the writer of Matthew, Matthew the tax collector who pens this gospel, is letting you know that Jesus, is, his ministry is now reaching way beyond the borders of Israel, and it's spread all over Syria. Very odd statement, but Matthew wants you to know that that Jesus' ministry has moved beyond the Jewish confines. Then reading on, and it says, And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Verse 25, large crowds from Galilee... That makes sense because that's where Jesus is ministering in Capernaum. It's in Galilee, along the shore of Galilee... And it says the Decapolis, that's where it gets strange. Because Decapolis is a Greek region. If you know anything about Greek, Deca is 10 and Polis is city. There are 10 cities that the Greeks have built beyond the confines of Israel and there's people coming out of the Decapolis to be in the crowd to hear Jesus and to meet him. Then reading on, it says Jerusalem. That makes sense because that's where the temple of Israel is. That's the center of worship. And then it goes on to tell us Judea. That's a little strange because those that live in Jerusalem don't get along well with the Judeans. And then it says, and the region across the Jordan followed him. That's shocking because the Jordan River is the boundary water of Israel. And now you've got people from Syria and from across the boundary water of the Jordan River are now gathering together to worship or to follow Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 1, and it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he knows who's in the crowd, he, he knows who's there, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. In other words, he takes the position of a rabbi. He sits down, and the scripture says his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now what's important to understand is this episode repeats itself in the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, we know clearly the them is his disciples. So Jesus has chosen his disciples. They're the ones that come to him, and he's teaching them. And the crowd is eavesdropping on what Jesus is teaching his disciples. We have to understand this, that the Sermon on the Mount is for Jesus' disciples. Why? The reason why is simple. They look out and they see the crowd. They can tell that the crowd is primarily no longer Jewish and they're freaking out. Because as a Jew, you know that the God of Israel is for Jewish people. And suddenly you're following this guy named Jesus and as you are, people are coming from other people groups and other nations. And as one theologian put it, you would never have this group at a barbecue during Jesus' day. Many of them hated each other. Yet here they are. They have gathered together around Jesus. This is who's in the crowd. 
Now, there's another thing that's very important to understand. Matthew tells you that from Syria, people are coming. From the Decapolis, they're showing up. And from the wrong side of the Jordan, people are gathering together. Why is that so important? It's important because God is now working outside of Israel because of Jesus. This is important to understand. Because in Jesus' day, as within the Older Testament, there was a belief that your God gave you a chunk of land and that's where your God operated. They believed this. You can see it clearly in the Older Testament. Because in the Older Testament, if Israel got in a battle with a foreign country and Israel lost the battle, what did the foreign nations say say to them as they took over Israel? They would say, our God is greater than your God. There's more proof of this in the Older Testament, and it shows up in 2 Kings chapter 5. The text won't be up on the screen, but I'm going to explain to you quickly what happens. In the book of 2 Kings, there is a foreign general from a foreign people group who ends up with leprosy. His name is Naaman. And when Naaman gets leprosy, It's devouring his flesh. He gets extremely sick. And there's a Jewish girl who's been held captive from a military excursion that he led. And she's now serving as a servant. And she says to Naaman, you know what? If you would go to Israel, the God of Israel will heal you. And there's a prophet there by the name of Elisha. And if you go to Elisha, God will hear Elisha's prayer and God will heal you. Well, Naaman's in trouble. So he goes to Israel, and he meets Elisha the prophet, and it ticks him off because Elisha says, what you need to do is go bathe in the river. And Naaman says, I have clean rivers where I come from, and you want me to go into a dirty river? And basically, the group that traveled with him came with Naaman and said, look, bro, you came this far. Don't stop now. Go ahead and follow through. And he does. Lo and behold, he dips himself in the river seven times. And when he comes up on the seventh time, God miraculously heals him of leprosy. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, in verse 15 and following, Naaman, this foreign general, says to Elijah the prophet, I now know that there is a true God. And the true God is the God of Israel. And he makes a public declaration he will never worship any God again other than the people, or I'm sorry, the God of Israel. And what he does in verse 17 of 2 Kings 5 is fascinating. He says to Elijah, after he tries to offer Elijah money for the healing, Elijah says, no way. And then Naaman, this general, says, well, I've got one request, and that is this. Will you allow me to take two donkey loads of dirt from Israel back to my country. Will you allow me to do that? And the prophet says, sure. Now, why is Naaman doing that? Well, it tells us. It says because he wants to worship the God of Israel and offer sacrifices to the God of Israel, but in order to do that, he has to stand on land from Israel. So he literally goes back to his country He dumps out two donkey loads of dirt, makes a little mound in his backyard, and when he wants to worship the God of Israel, he stands on the dirt of Israel and worships Israel's God. That was the belief in the Older Testament. So now picture this. What you have is you've got people from outside of Israel 
are hearing about Jesus. Jesus' ministry is reaching beyond the land of Israel and people from the Decapolis and people from Syria and people from beyond the Jordan are starting to move towards who Jesus is and they're gathering around him and as Jesus gets ready to do the Sermon on the Mount, the scripture's clear, he's talking to his disciples. Why? They're freaking out. Because all of these foreign people who are from other countries, they're not from Israel. They don't know anything about Israel's God. They don't know anything about the law of Moses. They don't know anything about what it takes to be right with God. They're now in the audience, and Jesus' disciples are uncomfortable. And so Jesus brings to them, within earshot of the crowd, what we call the Beatitudes. Now I want us to read them. Picture this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he brings them the Beatitudes and the crowd is listening in. Here's what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now here's one thing I noticed this week as I was studying the Beatitudes. Here's what I noticed. It begins with a connection to the kingdom of heaven is yours, and it ends with a connection to the promise that the kingdom of heaven is yours, and it begins with this. Those who are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Those who are persecuted for righteousness, the kingdom of heaven is yours, and I don't want to do either one of them. I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be poor in spirit. And I really don't want to be persecuted. I don't think any of us woke up this morning and said, look, here's what I want to do. is I get up today, I want to do two things. I want to be poor spiritually, and I want someone to whoop me for my faith. The reality of it is, the way I was taught the Beatitudes was that they were a one-to-one -one ratio. If you do this, you get this. If you do that, you get that. And there was somehow some type of a connection between the two, and you've got to get to X if you're going to get there. But if you read the entire Beatitudes that way, it's not long before it falls apart. That that one-to-one -one ratio, prime the pump, you get this. Prime the pump with that, you get that. All of a sudden, it kind of flatlines, and it doesn't seem to work. So what was helpful for me in prepping for this sermon is I read the book, The Divine Conspiracy. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do it. 
The Divine Conspiracy. And in it, the author of that book quotes another author about the Beatitudes. And here's what he says. Here's what he says. The Sermon on the Mount. He says, the promises attaching, for example, to the so-called Beatitudes must not be regarded as the reward of the spiritual states with which they are respectively connected, nor yet as their result. It is not because a man is poor in spirit that he is in the kingdom of heaven, in the sense that the one state will automatically grow into the other or be its result. Still less is the one the reward for the other. This is key. The connecting link in every beatitude is Jesus. That's the connecting link. You see, Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom of which he is the king. And it's only in him that these things can work themselves out. They're not equations. They're found in him and in Jesus Christ alone. Let me exemplify this as best I can. Here's the reality of it. I've met many people who are poor of spirit. We're going to talk about what that is in a moment. But I've met many people who are poor of spirit and they reject God wholesale and don't want anything to do with the kingdom of God. I've seen it. I've also met people who mourn, and in the midst of their grieving and their mourning, they actually reject God because of the pain and the suffering that they're going through. They have pushed God away. Now, I've also seen people come to faith in the midst of grief and mourning. I've seen both. And so even pastorally, I know, just because you're poor in spirit doesn't mean that you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Just because you're grieving or mourning does not mean that all of a sudden you're going to find the fullness of God and the comfort of God. I've seen both sides of all of those. So what is Jesus bringing to us? What is Jesus speaking to? What is Jesus talking about? Well, let's begin with poor in spirit, because that's where the Beatitudes begin. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does poor in spirit mean? It means that you don't understand how the kingdom works. You don't have a clue. And just picture Jesus with his disciples sitting on the mountainside as I've traveled through Israel Each guide points out the same little kind of natural bowl that really projects the voice well, and there's a belief that that's where Jesus gave on this little hillside the Sermon on the Mount. But in thinking about Jesus giving this Sermon on the Mount, we have to remember he's speaking to his disciples, and the crowd is there. And his disciples are upset because there are people that are apparently coming into the kingdom. They don't know anything about the kingdom. How can you be in if you don't know the law of Moses and you don't know the Ten Commandments and you're not observing the 613 laws of the Jewish faith? How in the world can you be in? And Jesus begins the inaugural teaching of his kingdom by saying this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who do not know 
how the kingdom of God works. That's where their poverty lies. They don't know how it works. They don't understand how it works. And they are in that, through Jesus, going to be blessed. So let me put it this way. If you're online and you're watching this sermon, or you're here at City Church Central, and you would say, man, I know faith is important. I know there's something about Jesus, but I just don't know much about it. I don't get how it all works. I want to be right with God, but I'm not sure how the God thing works. The Beatitudes begin with you. You're poor in spirit. You don't know how it works. You're uncertain about the God thing. And Jesus looks at his disciples and basically is saying, see this crowd? See the people that are making you uncomfortable? They're going to be blessed because of me. Because of me, the kingdom of heaven is going to be theirs. The kingdom of heaven is going to touch their hearts and touch their lives. And remember always as we process for the next several weeks through this idea of the Sermon on the Mount, we always have to remember who's saying it. Who teaches it matters. This comes from God's incarnate Son. And he's ushering in a new kingdom that doesn't function like any other kingdom. It definitely doesn't function like King Herod's kingdom. It's completely different. Who says it matters? When I was at Princeton there was a, we'll call it Princeton urban legend. And everyone who was on campus heard this story. Einstein had left Berlin and he'd come to the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton. And uh, while he was there, a lot of crazy things happened. But everyone who was on campus heard this story. And the story kind of exemplifies who says it matters. And so what ends up happening is Einstein's traveling and speaking extensively, and so he has a chauffeur that goes everywhere he goes. The guy drives him, sits in the audience, listens to Einstein talk about the theory of relativity and all this real complicated stuff. And so after doing this for a long amount of time, the chauffeur goes to Einstein and says, look, why don't we do something different? Why don't I give the talk? Because back then, not everyone knew who Einstein, what he looked like. They'd heard of him, they just didn't know what he looked like. And so they swap places, and the chauffeur gets up there, and he gives the lecture. Puts everything on the board. He'd seen it so many times, he knew it by heart. Well, at the end of the lecture, unfortunately, some physicist in the back raises his hand and asks a question. And all of a sudden, the chauffeur was stumped. And so what he said was, you know what, sir, that question is so easy. Why don't I have my chauffeur come up and answer that question for you? And he kind of, see, who speaks matters, doesn't it? By the way, I was very depressed. I looked that story up yesterday, and I found out on Snopes that it's not true. It actually didn't happen, but in my heart, it's still true, just the same. But the idea there is you have to know who's speaking. And when Jesus gets up and says this, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you don't understand the kingdom and you don't know how it works, in Jesus, you're blessed. If you're here and you're grieving and your heart is broken, Jesus says, I'm going to build my kingdom on broken-hearted people, but it's in him that we find comfort. 
And then blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Can you imagine Herod the Great hearing Jesus' inaugural speech for his kingship and his new kingdom? And the third thing he says is this, guess what? In my kingdom, the meek are going to get the whole earth. And King Herod would say, that is totally insane. Yet Jesus says it. And what he says to you and to me is that his kingdom is very different than we would have ever thought. If you don't get it all, you're poor in spirit. In him, you're in. If your heart is broken and your world's been shattered and life has not been what you want it to be, in him, you will find comfort. And then blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You see, in King Herod's economy, you conquer the earth. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you follow me and you come to who I am and you follow, there will come a day when you haven't conquered the earth. It's going to be given to you. You're going to inherit it. And inheritance comes because of relationship. As we close out our time together and we think about putting feet to our faith, what does it mean to put feet to our faith with these three Beatitudes? Blessed are those who are poor of spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. The way we walk into this is by faith alone. It's where you and I recognize Jesus We see him. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not a series of equations. The Sermon on the Mount puts the one who says it at the center of it. And if we love him and we follow him and we believe in him, then all of a sudden this new reality of a new kingdom begins to overcome our lives. But it begins with him. I'm going to ask that we would now stand together. And as we stand together... I'm going to ask that we would open up our hearts. And as we open up our hearts into God's presence, I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes, that you would keep your heart open. And if you're not comfortable doing this, it's totally fine. But if you're comfortable, I'm going to ask that you would extend your hands in front of you. And as you lift up your hands, it would be a sign of surrender but also a sign of receptivity to Jesus. Jesus, as we stand into your presence, we come as a group of people. We come as a group of people who stand in the poverty of spirit that we have without you. We come as a group of people whose hearts might be heavy and we're mourning and grieving. We come to you now for comfort. We come to you in a King Herod world where you fight for everything and you take it. And instead, we stand into your kingdom and we ask instead that we would be meek, that our strength would be restrained in your spirit and that in Jesus, in your name, we would long for and look forward to and find hope in the day where we will inherit the earth, that it will be given to us through you. If you're now standing in prayer and you know 
that Jesus is not at the center of your life, but you sense a drawing to him, you want the Sermon on the Mount to be true for you, that you've grown tired of the King Herod world, and you need a place where you can express your poverty, where you can grieve, where you don't have to have your fists up, but you can be meek and set all of that aside. If that's you, I want to encourage you to open up your heart to Jesus. Would you this morning, whether here in this sanctuary or online, you would take this moment to open up your heart to Jesus. And it always begins with confessing our poverty of spirit. Jesus, I don't know everything there is to know about who you are. But Jesus, I pray that you would take me right where I am. Jesus, I don't know everything there is to know about you, but I sense the Spirit of God drawing me to who you are. Jesus, forgive me for the things that I've done outside of God's best. Cleanse me from those things. Redeem me from myself. Transform me from who I am and bring me fully into your kingdom by the power of your Spirit. Jesus, let it be said of me. Let it be said of me. Let it be true of me that the kingdom of heaven is mine, that I'm comforted, and I have the hope that there will come a day where I will be part of those who inherit the kingdom of this earth. Lord, I pray for this, and I believe for it now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.